Welcome to Physicians Off the Beaten Path, a podcast where we have set out to bust the myth that physicians can't venture outside the traditional clinical or research career path. My name's Shad. I'm an MD and a Harvard MBA interested in healthcare investing and innovation. And my name is Alex. I am an MD and a Harvard MBA, and I'm interested in healthcare investing and entrepreneurship. Our guest today is Dr. David Crew. David is the founder of Primer, an application that allows physicians to provide patients with digitally recorded, personalized explanations regarding their medical conditions and treatments. David is a Connecticut-based radiation oncologist practicing at Trinity Health of New England. He holds an MD from Tulane University School of Medicine and an MPH from Tulane University School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine. David, thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me, guys. I'm excited to chat. Awesome. Fantastic. David, we're really excited to explore your story today. And, you know, to put things into perspective for our audience, can you briefly outline your story, you know, your childhood, why did you go to medical school, and eventually how did you decide to find your own path as an MD and an entrepreneur? Sure. So the... Going all the way back, um, as a child, I was just always enamored with science in general. And I also just enjoyed the gratification that I experienced when I helped people. So naturally, medicine became kind of an obvious choice. So I was uh, I went into college actually initially uh, as a, I was intending to be a business student and then switched to pre-med at, kind of at the last moment at the encouragement of my mother. Um, what I enjoyed being pre-med, you know, I love the basic sciences. Um, and uh, my favorite part about studying the basic sciences was always taking these complex concepts that I was studying either in physics, biochemistry, physiology, and converting it into little sketches and images that I would fill my notebooks with. That's how I, that's how I studied. That's how I helped, you know, I, I got myself to understand things on a conceptual level rather than just like memorizing um, pathways and things like that. Um, so I carried that interest on to when I uh, went to medical school down at Tulane in New Orleans, I kind of had a little side hustle teaching undergrads how to take the pre-med to get into medical school. And that was like a, a whiteboard teaching class. And I probably did about a thousand hours of teaching undergrads how to get ready for med school. Um, you know, sketching out on a whiteboard um, different pathways and using visuals to help them understand these same concepts that I had to, that I had to master to get into med school, and really just naturally carried that practice right into my medical practice as a radiation oncologist, and just part of my my natural routine with my new patients, new consults, patients who have a new diagnosis of cancer, is to get out the, the pen and paper, either right there on the exam table or on the back of a notepad, right in the exam room and just sketch out, you know, here's the basic anatomy, here's where your tumor is, these are the treatments. And I, I always found that that was a way to make the risks, the side effects, and, and what the future experience for that patient was going to look like to them. Um, very intuitive because they could see it there on the paper. Um, and that sort of brings us up to sort of the present day. Um, so I'll pause there and, and let you jump back in. Yeah, thank you, David. This is very interesting. And I think what's very interesting is how you've 
leverage this hobby of yours and, and this passion of yours in, into business. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to shift gears into Primer now. And I've read the story that you share about how one of your elderly patients wanted to keep a pen and paper drawing that you made uh, when you explained to her the lung cancer radiation therapy that she will be undergoing. And she wanted to use this drawing to explain uh, what the doctor said to her family. You know, you've said that this incident has inspired Primer. And a while ago, we've had uh, Mike Natter on the podcast. And, and Mike is an MD and an artist who's based in New York. And he also mentioned that he frequently uses drawings and sketches to explain things to his patients. Uh, so I, I just find that story fascinating. And so, David, can you tell the audience more about Primer? You know, are you approaching Primer as a business or as a nonprofit activity? And how did you navigate questions like identifying the market opportunity, the go-to-market strategy, and driving market adoption while still being a practicing physician? Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to talk more about that. So Mike Natter is a really talented guy. I'm a fan of his work. He he makes not only like really um, comprehensive uh, drawings and explanations for patients and medical students, but he also makes beautiful art. So if people don't know, they should check him out. Um, so the the story you're referencing is from kind of early days COVID, right? So patients were coming, we had a no visitor policy, they had to come alone. So they would come into the office, new diagnosis of cancer, even if you were 85 years old, that was the hospital policy. And, um, you know, it's a it's a lonely moment. It's a scary moment. And um, you guys can relate to this. When you're having difficult conversations with patients, sometimes you, you can see on their face the glazed over look. You, you know that they're not absorbing everything that you're talking to them about. So um, what I started doing during the early days of COVID was for these folks who had to come alone and then go back home and answer all the questions from their family. What, what did the doctor say? What's the plan? Um I knew that they were overwhelmed and I knew that they were stressed out by not only the pandemic, but also this new cancer diagnosis. And they were stressed that they had to explain it to their family. So I had this idea after that one woman asked to keep my paper drawing to convert my, my common medical explanations into digital assets. So in the form of like a, a little digital whiteboard style um, drawing with narration. And I built a library of about 50 or 55 or so. Um, prostate, breast cancer, rectal cancer, um, lung cancer, brain tumors. So kind of the most common things that I was seeing in my practice. Um, and then it kind of just took off from there. So what I started doing was I put them all on social media and it was, it was getting good traction there. People seemed to be responding well to them. And finding them helpful. But then I engaged some developers to see if they could build me a simple web app to transmit these, these videos to patients by text message. And the reason I asked them to do that was because I didn't want to email these videos to patients and open an email chain um, with my patients for a variety of reasons, including privacy and HIPAA. Um, and um, it didn't really work great because most of my elderly patients, it didn't work great to use like um, the epic, you know, messenger in basket situation. My patients don't really log into that. And to be honest, I'm not great about clearing out my in basket myself. So I couldn't really expect them to log in and use it. So I had some developers build a web app that could take my video and then send it as a simple text message. So the patients could just one click on it and it would pop up on their smartphone. 
um, while they're waiting to see me, either in the waiting room or in the room itself as soon as they're done getting their vitals. So that they could get some, called it primer, because they get just a brief overview explanation of you know, some of the details that they're going to get um, that will flesh out during the in-person interview. Yeah, I love that, David. And I get the narrative now around the idea and how the company started, but how did you approach, for example, components like identifying what is the most appropriate go-to-market strategy? I know you've mentioned that the content that you've created is, is already taking part in, in, in multiple decentralized trials. So we'd, we'd love to get your thoughts on, you know, how did you approach these business questions of what's the most appropriate uh, kind of go-to-market strategy? Who are the early partners to engage beyond the initial phase of developing the app and developing the idea? Sure. So initially, the vision was I wanted to build software so that any doctor who wanted to create digital versions of their explanations would have a vehicle to send it to patients. And so I asked around, there were doctors who were interested in this, and I had several who actually paid for access to this platform that we built. But then I saw that engagement was really pretty low, even though these guys were paying me for access to it. So I went back and interviewed them and asked them why they weren't using it. And, you know, nothing surprised me. It's just, you know, in the in the course of my daily workflow, I can't, I don't have time to log into yet another system. So then there was an idea, maybe we should have um, my MA or my nurse who runs my clinic sending the videos off. Um, but then it loses a bit of like the curated touch where they may send the wrong one, patient gets confused, and the whole thing can backfire. So I took a step back and reevaluated the whole go-to-market strategy. Um, and around that same time, I spoke with a friend who's a principal investigator on multiple clinical trials. And he was describing his pain points relating to explaining the multitude of clinical trial options to patients and how it would work much better if he had a primer-like video to, that corresponded to each of his trials. And so he hired us to create content for each of his trials. And once we kind of got that initial traction, it really just took off from there because the value add to other clinical research teams was very intuitive. Once they could see that their whole protocol, which is a 40-page document usually, um, has converted into a digestible two-minute IRB-approved simple video that patients can consume before a meeting and on demand and share with their family at scale. Um, that, that value, like I said, was, was very intuitive to them. So since then, we're really just getting at this point organic outreach and referrals from our customers, from their colleagues. And the sales motion or the go-to-market strategy, if you will, is really kind of like a bottoms-up approach where I'm inter interacting with my contemporaries, my colleagues who are the PIs. Um, and that's where the initial engagement happens, but the funding for the content is happening at the trial sponsor level. So it's a bit of a complex uh, go-to-market strategy, but so far it seems to be working. Thank you, David. You know, I, I love the, the perspective of how your position as a medical doctor has helped you flesh out these questions and, and you know, your systematic approach to identifying the, the problems that you need to tackle. Would you, you know, you released the first version, you've seen that there is not that much engagement with the first app. And so you actually went back and interviewed uh, those physicians and identified where the bottlenecks actually exist. And I think this brushes up with one insight that, that Chad and I had through the time that we spent in the, in the space of digital therapeutics, which is 
around the importance of making sure that any of these digital innovations that are uh, coming to the clinic are integrated into the workflow of physicians in the most streamlined way possible. Because, you know, it's not enough to create a clinically efficacious digital therapeutic for whatever condition, right? We must make sure that the infrastructure around the prescription, around monitoring of patients is created in a way that would fit into the very busy daily lives uh, and daily workflows of, of clinicians who would be prescribing this intervention. So loved hearing your insights there, but I'm going to hand over to Shad now for a couple of questions from his end. Thanks, Alex. And really, really enjoying the conversation so far, David. A lot of really interesting insights. I just wanted to reflect on some of them before I dive into questions. I usually think a lot about how someone who starts a company is uniquely positioned to create that company and scale that company. I think this is perfect in your case because you sort of give us this whole story about how long you spent, you know, over a thousand hours teaching undergrads or, you know, probably more than a thousand hours teaching your patients and walking them through sort of all these different problems. And so in many ways, you were perfectly positioned to start a company like Primer. A lot of doctors may have the insight that there's a pain point around, you know, physician and patient communication, but, you know, they might not have the expertise or the passion or the time or the ambition to, to solve that particular problem. So I think this is a, a perfect illustration uh, of the right person starting, like noticing the right pain point and then creating a solution for it and then making it successful. Another thing that it reminded me of is Sal Khan and his journey of starting Khan Academy. He, he's actually an HBS grad and, and came and spoke to us a couple of times. But he always has this funny story about how while he was working at a hedge fund, he was creating these videos for the younger folks in his family and sort of teaching them basic math or reading or whatever it was. And then he realized he was quite good at it. And so he, he sort of established that before he left his job at a hedge fund uh, to go start Khan Academy. The last thing that I wanted to reflect on is something that Alex mentioned. But, you know, while you were talking about why the initial adoption for Primer was low, I think it's spot on that you have to think about the, the workflow of, of a clinician. You know, for us, we were thinking about creating a physician dashboard for our product, and we still probably will, but a lot of physicians have told us, hey, like, make it as low touch as possible. Like, I, I don't want another thing to log into, to spend like 15, 20 minutes a day, like typing stuff into, like make it as passive as possible. I'll prescribe your product if it helps my patient, but I just don't want to spend 20, 30 more minutes in my already packed day interacting with a different software that's probably like not integrated to Epic or, or whatever I use. And so this is a fundamental problem that, you know, you can't necessarily get these insights unless you talk to the right stakeholder or you yourself are, are the right stakeholder. So I, I really, really love the first bit of this conversation. Just shifting gears here a little bit, David, you know, we have a lot of pre-meds, medical students, residents, young docs who, who are part of our audience. And you've demonstrated through your amazing work that a medical student or a physician can build, you know, something like a visual and medical library using only, only a laptop and, and some software. Physicians, because of their position in our healthcare ecosystem, are primed, I believe, to be innovators. We notice pain points everywhere because of so much of what we do, right? Because, you know, either we're scheduling a visit or rolling a patient to the OR, finding where a patient is in the ER or trying to find different materials in the hospital. We know that all of these things and all of these experiences are far from optimized, especially because the hospital and clinic setting is so operationally complex. 
you had doctors who are some of the brightest minds and hardest working people in our society are often not on the forefront of innovation. Uh, in fact, some innovators and investors will sometimes have jokingly say that it's hard to get doctors to try anything new, let alone build anything new. And I think that's a shame. And, and I know that's a little bit of a broad generalization. There's a ton of exceptions, but my sense is that a lot of that risk averseness has to do with uh, medical education, residency training, and then the culture it breeds. And one of our guests actually uh, on the podcast said that the current medical education system squashes the creativity, his words, not mine, squashes the creativity of doctors in many ways. And it forces you to think relatively narrowly in a risk averse way, perhaps for a good reason, because, you know, I always say, say jokingly, have jokingly that when you're in the OR operating on a patient, that that's not the time to like take risks, right? Like safety is paramount. So I understand where that sort of tension comes from, but there are unintended consequences to that. And so I'm just curious from your perspective, what do you think about the current state of medical education and how do you think it can improve to unleash the bottled up and, and creative potential of doctors? So Shad, I think, I think there's a, a few great insights there. I'd love to comment on a couple of them. One is, um, as it relates to the current culture in medical training, as it as it relates to creativity versus and innovation versus kind of following the beaten path, I almost I came quite close to going down the wrong path because of the culture, right? So the way I'm just speaking for myself, others I think probably have a different view, but some insights I have now about my former self are that the best job for me was the highest status signal job. That the best job I could get was at the biggest name academic center, um, or if it was gonna be in private practice, it was at the biggest health system with the biggest name. Um, and I, I came quite close to doing those things, but in reality, I ended up finding myself in a job in a smaller health system, in a private practice where we have an enormous amount of latitude as it relates to um, our autonomy, our ability to make our own schedule and um, control our patient flow and certainly make our own autonomous decisions about what we want to do for our patients. Um, and that kind of space that, I, that has been created for me to be a free thinking person um, I don't think I'd have that much space to innovate, to think creatively, and to actually implement some of my own innovations in my own clinical practice had I gone down the path that um, my former self thought was the right path, which was to only, to only pursue the opportunities that were presented to me that were like the highest status signal among my peer group. Um, so it was a close call, and I'm really glad I found my own path because I am able to, you know, build innovative products, utilize them in my own practice, build a business. Um, none of this, I, I don't think, would have been uh, possible or nearly as easy had I gone into a bigger, more bureaucratic health system. Um, just to name, you know, the most obvious reason is that if you're an employee of a large health system, you don't own fully the IP that you create while you are an employee there, right? So um, there's a variety of other reasons, but that that would be the biggest one. Um, so 
to take a step back, I do have an opinion on the way that we kind of treat the elder statesmen and elder stateswomen in our field. And um, it's maybe an unpopular opinion. I, I just, I don't think that mandatory retirement, I wouldn't go quite that far, but I would say we should normalize transitioning the more senior members of, of uh, our physician groups into from working in the problem of healthcare to working on the problem of health systems, um, perhaps by age 50 or 55 or something like that. So you spend the first half of your career really in the trenches, really understanding the problems. Um, and then the second half of your career, you, we, we, I believe we should normalize transitioning out of the trenches and not necessarily into hospital administrative management, but into startups, into uh, incubators, in, into more innovative uh, solutions, think tanks, things like that, to try and improve the, the systems that we're working within. Um, I think that's one way that we could um, begin to change the culture. If it was almost an expectation that, I, that you're going to hang up the white coat at age 50 and move on to something that's like pure creativity, then I think that um, you know we might start to see people being f a little bit more free, a little bit more latitude to express their ideas about how they think we, they, we could do things better in hospitals. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to think about the, the issue. And, and something, honestly, I, I'd never sort of thought about it in that sense. I think a lot about sort of normalizing expectations to go off the beaten path, but not in terms of sort of the first half of your career to the second half. And I understand it has to be sort of optional. That's actually very illuminating. I think a couple of things that I want to reflect on, David, is you mentioned you went down the wrong path. And I think here, this is somewhat of an unpopular opinion, but decisions matter of what specialty you go into. Uh, I mean, look, you can go into any specialty and become an innovator, but I think it becomes harder with certain specialties, right? Like if you're an EM doc or a radiologist or a hospitalist, you may have more flexibility and more time than if you're a cardiac surgeon. In fact, we interviewed Alex Debilius, uh, who's like, you know, a very senior investor nowadays, who used to be a cardiac surgeon. And he said he couldn't do both. So he had to leave cardiac surgery, then went to McKinsey to do consulting, then eventually went to Goldman Sachs to do finance. Sometimes you have to shut certain doors. Or if you have the foresight to know that you want to have a dual career in the intersection of healthcare and business, I tell people, hey, like if you like both general surgery and internal medicine, you know, maybe that tips the favor into internal medicine. Again, I'm not saying this should be the only reason why you choose a certain specialty over another, but it should be one of many metrics that you utilize when trying to decide how to sort of figure out what specialty you want to go into. I like that a lot. Someone gave me great advice as a medical student to, when you're making this really important decision in your life. Think about your 50 or 55-year-old self and don't choose something that you're really excited about as a 25-year-old or 30-year-old that you, you don't see yourself actually doing anymore when you're 50 or 55. Um, that gave me a lot of clarity of thought. And um, ultimately, there were a variety of other reasons that I, I was really passionate about radiation oncology, taking care of cancer patients. I liked physics. Um, I loved anatomy, but didn't want to be in the OR. You know, for all these other reasons, um, radiation oncology was a great match for me. But it also happened to be one, a field where I, I knew I could do it if I wanted to until I was probably 90. 
Um, physically, it's just not nearly as demanding as other specialties, to your point. Yeah, no, I get that point, David. And, and speaking of radiation oncology, I, I think my first love in terms of specialty in medical school was actually radiation oncology. And, and I did a lot of research in Radonc at Memorial Sloan Kettering, and uh, which was across the street from Cornell, where I went to med school and at Cornell. And then things just changed, but I certainly get that point. Moving on, David, to the next question, I just want to channel some of your insights to provide sort of tactical advice to some of the folks listening. For those in our audience who may have an innovative idea but are working you know, 40, 50, 60 hours a week in clinical medicine, or even more if you're a resident, right? Sometimes it feels like you don't even have room to, or time to eat when you're a resident. What recommendation would you have, David, to that person so that they can take the next step? You know, identifying a pain point, a need, and then figuring out a solution obviously is important, but it's only you know, one of you know, 100 steps that you have to take to building and scaling uh, a company whether for profit or not for profit. So we would love just your perspective here on on what these folks can do. I would say start with your own problem. Audit your audit your work week, audit your work month. Figure out where you're experiencing pain. Um, and pain you experience as a med student is going to be different than resident and as a junior attending and private practice but but everybody has pain in their workflow. There's a lot of problems with the system. Um, so if you're just really honest with yourself and you audit your workflow, you can pretty easily identify like a real problem that is worth solving. So you're going to be better than anybody else at solving that problem if it's your problem. You know, it's, you have key insights that other people won't have. Um, so I would say that's a good place to start. Um, the, the thing that is sort of like an obvious thing, but like I really have experienced this pretty intensely over the last two and a half, three years is that just getting started is the most important thing. Like having that idea, um, we all are kind of walking around with these big ideas in our head, but like just get started and do not be afraid to fail because 95% of building a business and, and doing a startup or building an agency or a, a service like I'm doing is really basically at its core is just a service content as a service. Um, most of the progress you make is through failures. Like I said at the top, you know, I, I tried building a software platform for doctor creators to share their stuff with patients in a HIPAA compliant way. It was a, it was a failure. I, I had to, so many blind spots about what um, was reasonable to expect doctors to introduce into their workflow that's fine. I hit that wall and then I just pressed against other bricks in the wall. And then with clinical trials, one popped through and you just keep going. Um, once you get a little piece of traction, you just don't let it go. Just keep pulling on it, keep pulling on it. Um, and as long as it's something that's authentic to you, you enjoy it, but you're also good at it. Um, you, and you keep pulling on that thread, things will progress and you will make progress. You, you will, um, be able to find customers, you, you know, you will be able to solve their problems. Um, and that really at its core is all business really is, is solving problems, adding value for people um, to the extent that they're willing to pay. Yeah, no, I completely agree, David. That's really, really well said. And I think something you said, it, it may be obvious, but I think we forget it all the time, which is that, you know, getting started 
is the most important thing and is probably the hardest thing, right? I, you notice, if you notice, I put a challenge out there to anyone in the audience who's listening, right? Like any good thing that you want to do, whether it's exercise or eating well, like, you know, like intuitively that starting is the hardest thing. But once you do it, you don't even realize it's part of your daily routine anymore. And then you stop and then picking it back up becomes hard again, right? It's the same thing with trying to solve a problem while you're working, you know, 60, 70 hours in residency or as a fellow or as an attending or whatever it is, whether it's, you know, one weeknight a month or, you know, 30 minutes every single day after you get home, starting small and starting with something that's sustainable and achievable is, I think, the best way, best way forward. And then you can scale it from there. Another thing I wanted to mention is you sort of, you know, talked about this notion of being uniquely positioned to, to, to make a difference and then being uniquely positioned to identify the, a certain pain point. Uh, our entrepreneurship professor at HBS always says, you know, identifying the $5 bill on the ground that no one else can see. Obviously, he says it in, in financial terms because that's what MBAs understand. <laughs> uh, have joking there. But identifying a pain point that no one else can see because you're uniquely positioned in an ecosystem is what you know, value creation really is about, at least that's the start of value creation. And, and saying to yourself, oh, if this was a big problem, it would have been solved already is definitely not true. And I've sort of realized that from personal experience starting Sky Therapeutics. Uh, but this has been an absolutely fantastic conversation, David. To finish us off, you know, how can our audience learn more about what you do and, and follow the impact that you've had and will continue to have? Sure. Thanks. And thanks for Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. I'm learning a ton from you guys and I love the work you're doing. Um, just normalizing, going off the beaten path. I think more people need to talk about this in public. Um, so best way to follow my work is on LinkedIn, actually. Um, so it's just my name on LinkedIn. Uh, you can email me anytime. I'm happy to connect with people who have questions um, or just want to explore potential business partnerships. It's my name, David Grew at Primer Med and Primer is P-R-I-M-R-M-E-D.com. Um, and I'm also on Twitter at Dr. Grew. Awesome. Thank you so much, David. Really, really appreciate it. And you're welcome back anytime. Alex, that was such a great conversation with David. Lots of really, really interesting insights, but I'll just briefly mention one. So you had a very interesting point regarding the normalization of expectations of going off the beaten path as clinicians become so-called, you know, elder statesmen in clinical medicine. So the phraseology that David used to describe it is going from working in the problem to on the problem. And that's a really nice, nice way to put it. I think it's an interesting idea that's worth exploring. I tend to think that working on the problem, as he mentioned, can require some knowledge and experience beyond just the clinical realm meaning that being immersed in the clinical world as a practitioner for many years is certainly a big asset because you understand the pain points, you see what's going on, and you have clinical knowledge, but it may not be sufficient without honing other broadly termed business skills. So I think a knowledge and educational component or business is needed for doctors in general. But in general, I like the idea, as long as it's voluntary, my whole thing is doing what you want to do. So if you want to start working on the problem when you're younger, as a medical student or as a resident or a young attending, I say go for it. And if you love taking care of patients and want to keep doing that until the day you retire, 
then I think that's equally a, a good option. So in that sense, I'm decidedly pro giving people uh, more choice, but certainly normalizing the notion that people, physicians can go off the beaten path um, to achieve success in, in non-clinical ways is something that I generally support. Over to you, Alex. Chad, those are great reflections. And I think my two cents are around the idea of unfair advantage that indirectly came up during the conversation. So, you know, David had mentioned that he has always had a passion for drawing and visually representing and communicating different concepts and ideas. And it's not really intuitive how this passion for drawing would interface with his experience as a medical doctor. But, you know, he was able to merge both and create a company that leverages visual representation uh, to communicate critical information to patients in an engaging way. And, you know, our previous guest, Mike Natcher, was able to combine his professional identity as a medic with his passion for drawing to create anatomy-based art and paintings. So I would really encourage our audience to think about their unfair advantage as an intersection of a number of Venn diagrams. You know, one is your professional identity. Another one could be your personal passions and hobbies things that you're really good at because you enjoy doing them. Another component could be, you know, your kind of your background if you come from another country or, for example, if you're an international student. And so I remember actually Shad and I were participating in a panel uh, at Boston Children's Hospital a few months ago. And one of the residents, for example, really likes robotics. And, you know, during his residency, he spent a lot of time actually working with multiple labs and in the Boston ecosystem and helping them design robots on a, on a very professional level. So I think really I would, I would encourage the audience there to, you know, broaden your perspective of your unfair advantage, which really goes beyond just the component of your professional identity. This concludes our reflection for uh, this episode. And, you know, join us next episode for more conversations with amazing physicians who have off the beaten path and remember to follow us on social media on facebook instagram and twitter at potbp podcast and to catch our latest podcasts on spotify apple podcasts google podcasts and amazon music to get in touch with us you can email us at physicians of the beaten path at gmail.com or visit our website at potbppodcast.com and you know if you have any recommendations for guests or any feedback on the episodes please share them with us and we look forward to hearing from you see you soon